As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark 1, 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way we live our lives? How many of us can say we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestled alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what did these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our lives, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the Acts of the Apostles. And last week, what we saw was another narrative of the church slowly growing. And I think for the purpose of understanding chapter 5, which we're going to be in tonight, it would be good to go back to verse 32 of chapter 4, just so we can gain an added context of what's happening, because the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira, which we're going to begin chapter 5 with, picks up directly after these following verses, where we heard a summary of the church growing while the faithful were selling their land and offering that land to the feet of the apostles, so that way the apostles could distribute that money to those who were in need. <clears throat> so rather than me rambling on and on, as I typically do at the beginning of these, let's jump to verse 32 of chapter 4, so that way we can understand more of what's going to be happening in the beginning of chapter 3, rather chapter 5. So, from verse 32, chapter 4. Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things which he possessed were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of land and houses sold them, and bought their possessions of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was surnamed by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him, and which would, which belonged to him, and the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what do we see here? Well, we see this motif of those in the church selling their property and laying the proceeds of that at the feet of the apostles. And the reason for that, as we saw, was because the apostles will then distribute that wealth to those who have need. 
So the apostles are serving this role as distributors. And the reason for that is because, hierarchically speaking, they are giving order to this church community. They're ministering to the people directly, so they see the needs of all of those within the community. So what do we see for the laity, the average person within the church? But we see that they're coming together, and they're selling that which they have in excess. And again, for a little added context, we might think of property as being an essential. Yet, in the first century Israel, what we see is that there are a lot of nomadic people. Owning property is something that is a luxury rather than a common occurrence. Again, we need to kind of read the text from the perspective of someone at this day and age rather than someone living here in the 21st century. So if that's the case, the example that we have here is of the members of the church selling what they have in excess. This is a free offering, a free offering that they're making of their own gain, so that way they can live this life in Christ. And what we see here in the offering up of possessions is symbolic of what they are called to do with the whole of their life. Because if we remember what Christ was saying over and over again throughout the gospel narrative, he was calling them to offer up their whole life to God. Because everything, including their very life, that they have is a gift given to them by God. And subsequently, this is how we too are called to look at our life. So everything that we have, even our very life, is a gift given to us by God. And so if we are given this gift, we are called to use it to his glory. We're called to use all of our gifts in ministry because that's why we're given our talents that's why we're given our wealth, as we see in this example. Everything that is given to us is to be used to glorify God in his creation. And we see with Barnabas, this is what is taking place. So this man, Joseph, who is surnamed by the apostles Barnabas, which we're told here means son of encouragement, is a Levite and yet a native of Cyprus. So he is of the lineage of the Levitical priesthood. And if that's the case, it would be his role to serve in Jerusalem. And yet he's not living and serving in Jerusalem. We see that rather he's a native of Cyprus. So he's living in Gentile territory away from where he is responsible to be. And yet after hearing the gospel, what does he do? Well, he sells his field, which belongs to him, and brings the money and lays it at the feet of the apostles in the same way that we saw with all those in the church before him. So what this tells us is that this man is actively participating in repentance. He was called to serve, something that he wasn't doing, if we read into the text very closely here. And yet... After hearing the words of the risen Christ, he sells his field and brings the money and lays at the apostles' feet. And doing this, we don't see any compulsion. We don't see Peter or any of the apostles coming out and yelling at him, Hey, Barnabas, we need you to sell everything that you have and give it to us. 
Rather, this is something that he is doing freely in the same way that we've seen those who've come before him do likewise. So now we need to contrast this as we begin the next chapter. And this contrast will help us have an added perspective of the events that are about to transpire with Ananias and Sapphira. So moving on to verse 1 of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold... Was it not your, at your own disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Hark, the feet of those that have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her besides her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we might be seeing here why it was so important to read the end of chapter four, because the contrast that we see that I was speaking of earlier is direct here. Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of their property. So rather than selling their land, period, as we saw with the description at the end of chapter 4, we see already that there's this half-heartedness at play with what they're doing. And we hear in verse 2, with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back some of the proceeds from this piece of land that he sold and laid only part of the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. So what do we see here? Well, we see that Ananias and Sapphira are colluding together to do this. Not only did Ananias only sell part of his property, but he even holds back that part from the apostles. So why is this a problem? What's the issue that's going on here? Well, the issue is the lie that both Ananias and Sapphira are saying. Because what they're doing is trying to participate in the glory of being a Christian without actually backing that up with the actions that we see from the other Christians. Now, when we hear Peter start to question Ananias, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? 
So we see here that St. Peter is inspired by the Holy Spirit to say these words. And what he points out is that there's a different spirit that's in Ananias' heart. The spirit of Satan, the adversary, is currently filling the heart of Ananias and distorting him to believe that he can lie to the Holy Spirit, which hypothetically should be dwelling within him. And so rather than telling the truth and rather than saying, here you are, I'm going to give you part of what I have in relation to God, in relation to the Spirit, what does Ananias do? Well, Ananias wants the glory of saying, look, I've given you everything. And yet in reality, he's holding back part of the proceeds. And yet we hear in verse 4, Peter says that the money, the proceeds, his property, everything, well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So we see that his property is his. It belongs to him. Now, again, we understand that everything that's given to us is a gift from God. And yet God doesn't go around punishing people who don't know him for not using those gifts to his glory. That would be ludicrous if that was the case, because there are so many people who do not know God. So how are they supposed to know to give glory to him in all things? And yet Ananias knows what he's being called to do. He is conscious of his actions and consciously withholds money while saying that he offered the whole. So the issue isn't in the number itself. This isn't saying to us, okay, well, there's a certain amount of money that we need to donate every single year or else we're going to go to hell or we're going to drop dead like Ananias. Rather, what we see here is a call to intentionality and a call to not try and deceive God. Because if God knows us from our mother's womb, as the Psalms tell us, well then, how are we supposed to ever deceive him? If God is the creator of all, how can we turn around and lie to him and word? Because as we see in the words of Peter, you have not lied to men, but to God in doing this. And it's for this reason that we hear in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And this might be shocking. And I know for me, like this was a passage that didn't make sense for a very long time because I wasn't reading it within the broader context of Acts. I'd always ask myself, okay, why are these people dropping dead just because they didn't give enough money? This doesn't make sense. This seems rather foreign. And then we start to fall in the heresies of thinking that, well, this sounds like an Old Testament God, like there's some division between the God of the Old and the God of the New Testament. That's not the case. Yet what we see here is that Ananias has already died before experiencing physical death. When he closed his heart off to the will of the Spirit, in a way he's experiencing physical death, spiritual death rather. And what we see physically is the manifestation of that death in the here and now. And whenever something like this happens, 
that is an extreme reaction from the Lord, we need to ask ourselves, what is the purpose? What is the message that will ultimately lead us to salvation that's happening here? And what we see is, first of all, if Satan has entered Ananias, well, he's being cut off at the pass here. Because again, this is the early church. And within the early church, we're seeing this drastic growth. And yet, along with that growth, we see Satan try to plant weeds within the church. And so this is an action of snuffing one of those out. Again, it's not saying that Ananias is an evil person, period, and he's damned to hell, but it is saying that he has put himself at odds with God. And for that reason, now his life is taken. The end of his days in this earth have come. And yet it's still the responsibility of the church to care for his body bury him and continue to pray for him as we pray for everyone. And so what do we see as being the key point here? Well, the key point is the fear that comes upon all who hear it. This fear we're going to see re-articulated when we look at Sapphira, his wife, but the fear that we see within the church is a recognition of how great God is. As we say within the divine liturgy before we receive communion, with the fear of God and with faith and love draw near, we approach God with fear because it's within that fear that we recognize him as being totally other. So if we understand God as being totally other and yet condescending to our level so that way we can have eternal life in him, well then we understand the great gift that we are being given in our life. And so if we understand that great gift, we become conscious of our actions. And so what we see here is in this fear response, there's a call to consciousness of all those who are making offerings. Because again, what is the issue of Ananias? Well, the issue is that he is intentionally holding back part of his wealth while claiming to offer his whole to God. So this is even a warning to those who might be partially conscious of their actions, waking them up and saying, okay, you need to be totally intentional with what you're doing. You can't be claiming to make sacrifices that you're not willing to wholeheartedly make. And we see this continued in verse 7, because we hear after an interval of about three hours, so there's a span of time that passes, the wife of Ananias, Sapphira, comes not knowing what happened to her husband. And so we see here, again, as we saw way back in verse 2, that Sapphira is an agent in this. She has agency. She has conspired with her husband. She knows what he has done, even though the land technically belongs to him. And so Peter here gives her an off-ramp. He gives her an opportunity for repentance. So he asks her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Now, if Sapphira had repentance in her heart, she would tell Peter of the lie. And yet, we see her doubling down. We see this conspiracy of the two continue even after the death of her husband. Because she states, yes, for so much. 
And so in verse 9, we hear Peter reply by saying, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Hark, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. So we see through the conspiracy of the two that they suffered the same fate, because immediately she fell down at his feet and died. And when the young men came, they found her dead, and they carry her out and buried her beside her husband. And we see here again in verse 11 that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I think it's important here to note that in verse 11, in the word church, ecclesia in Greek, this is the first usage of the word within the Acts of the Apostles in particular. This is the first time that the congregation is referred to as church, even though I've been so flippantly throwing it around up to this point. So what is important here? Well, it's important to realize that the whole congregation is full of fear. This fear has come upon all of them as one and upon all of those who heard these things. And again, this fear isn't terror. This fear isn't something that is supposed to isolate. Rather, this fear is something that shakes awake. This fear is something that calls us to the consciousness, because we're supposed to have the same fear in the face of the Lord. That fear reminds us that our actions have consequences. That fear reminds us that if we live a life separated from God, then we cannot participate in the glory that he offers us. So if we call ourselves Christians, what are we called to do? Well, we're called to live lives totally oriented towards the Lord and his kingdom. We're called to do good. We're not called to do evil. And our actions have tangible consequences. And so the little good that we do every day goes a longer way than we might think. In the same way that the bad that we do in a day, over time, compounds and goes a long way in pulling us off track. It's for this reason that we need to be intentional. So when we give, we are called to give with our whole heart. And again, this isn't specifically speaking about financial goods, we're not exclusively called to sell everything that we have so that way we can distribute it or have the church distribute it. Rather, each of us is called to give to our, of our own ability because we need to serve those who we are called to serve in the same way that God continually serves us. So when we have excess, what are we called to do with that? But we're not called to store it up in barns for a rainy day, we're called to use it to the glory of them. If we have talents, what are we called to do with them? We're not called to place them under a bed or under a bushel. Rather, we're called to put them up on a lampstand to glorify God so the, Lord, the world can see his glory. As Christians in action, we are called to preach the gospel because it's through this participation in the gospel and the saving works of Christ, that we are given the strength and wisdom of the Spirit 
to be able to proclaim that gospel as well in word. But we can't do that unless we experience this interrelation. We can't do that unless we first act. And we can't fully act unless we become conscious of why we're doing what we're doing. So moving on to verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high honor. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and pallets, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So we see here another summary. And within that summary, we hear that many signs and wonders are done among the people by the apostles. So the saving acts of Christ are now transpiring through the actions of the apostles. And we see here that this is a very similar summary to the summaries we would hear of Jesus when he was going from town to town. And again, this is another key for us to remember what has happened in the gospel to show us who is truly at work now. Because although we see the apostles are the ones going from place to place, it is not of their own power that they're doing these things. And we see that the church is continuing to grow exponentially to the point where they can't all be gathered in one house. Rather, we hear that they're gathered in Solomon's portal. And then we have this really strange verse here in verse 13 where we hear, none of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in honor. So who is the them who's being referred to here? Well, we need to look back to who the subject was of verse 12, because the subject was the apostles. So if the apostles are being identified in verse 12, and now we hear none of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in honor, and then in verse 14 we hear, that more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Well, we see that this is in reference to the apostles. And we need to kind of understand here, well, what was the role of the apostles? Why are there no more being added to them? Well, the role of the apostles is to be sent out. That's what the name literally means. They are the ones who are sent out by Christ. They serve a very distinct role within the history of the church. They're not bishops, they're not priests, and as we're going to see in the next chapter, they're not deacons either. Rather, they serve the specific role of being witness to Christ directly and making his gospel known throughout the whole world. So Peter, who's been identified time and time again here, within our tradition, he's not a pope. He's not a bishop. He's an apostle, which means he's serving a very specific role. And it's for this reason that when we get to the council in Jerusalem, a few chapters from now, we're going to see that's not Peter who's sitting as chief among the council. 
It's going to be James, the brother of the Lord, the bishop of Jerusalem. And it's because as the apostles are going from place to place, what are they doing? Well, as they're preaching the gospel, they're installing bishops to take care of that see. It's not their role to stay in one place. Rather, it's their role to preach the gospel to all nations. So we see here that there's no one else added to this order. And in fact, when the apostles die, we see that there aren't other apostles being brought up to take their place. Rather, the role of the apostle carries on through the gospel. The role of the apostle carries on mystically as they judge the 12 tribes of Israel sitting in 12 thrones in the divine council of God. And this, again, is an intimation for us that death is not an end. Again, if it's important to have these 12 because they're going to serve this distinct role within the church, well, then we understand now that the resurrection has come, now that Christ has trampled down death by death itself, these same 12 individuals continue to serve that role in the life that has come a life that we can be active participants in in the here and now when we live our life in Christ. So it's important here to realize that. So what do we see from their example? Well, we see as they continue to preach the gospel, even more believers are added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So this shows us the universal nature of the gospel because it's not only being offered to men, but to women as well. We've seen rich and we've seen poor included. We've seen the ill and the well included. We've seen Jews and Gentiles all included in the kingdom, all being offered this opportunity of eternal life in Christ. And that universal nature is so important for us to realize because what do we see continually preached by the apostles? Well, to be able to participate in the kingdom. We don't need to be of an ethnic group. We don't have to be of a certain lineage. Rather, what we need to do is repent and live our life in Christ. And what happens when we live a life centered in Christ? Well, we see here that as Peter is passing by those who are ill, even his shadow begins to heal them. And again, remember, Peter is not the one who is healing. And in fact, in the usage of shadow here, we see this even more explicitly articulated to us. Because it's not saying Peter is consciously identifying these people by name and healing them. Rather, it's saying as he is passing by, the spirit is healing through him, whether he realizes it or not. And this shows us how we, too, can allow for God to work through us. Because when we live lives in Christ, we can't even begin to account for the good that we do. Because all of the good that we do in this world, in the same way that the bad that we do in this world, has consequences that we can't even fathom. There's always going to be this trickling effect and this rippling effect that comes from every single action that we conduct. 
So in the same vein, as we see Peter continue to preach the gospel, what's happening? Well, the saving acts of Christ are working through him, whether he's conscious of it or not. We see this with all of the apostles. And what does their example do? Well, this example causes the people from all around Jerusalem to bring their sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and lay them at the feet of the apostles to be healed. Because it's not the apostles directly who are healing these people. Rather, it's Christ who they are meeting through them who is doing the healing, as we saw throughout the entire gospel and now is being made manifest through his church. So moving on to verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison door and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and taught. Now the high priest came and those who were with him and called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prisons to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the sentries standing at the door, but when we opened it, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were much perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching, and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So after the summary of the saving acts of the apostles, what do we see? Well, we see the high priest rises up and all who were with him, that's the party of the Sadducees, are filled with jealousy. So this is very similar to the response that we saw of the leaders of the Jewish people to Jesus. They see the authority of Jesus throughout the entire gospel narrative, and that continues to harden their heart because they treasure their authority over men more than being participants within the true authority offered to them by God. And now we see that the apostles are experiencing the same guile. They're experiencing the same jealousy. And once again, we see the Sadducees highlighted. And again, why are the Sadducees so angry? Well, they're the party, if we remember from St. Luke's Gospel, that did not believe in the resurrection. So if the apostles are going around preaching the resurrection of Christ, well, that's going to infuriate them even more because they don't believe that the resurrection is going to be a thing. So if they don't believe the resurrection is going to be a thing at the end of days, well, all of a sudden we have this group of people preaching that the resurrection has occurred. Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, has risen. So that continues to infuriate them and the rest of the rulers of the people are infuriated because their authority is being contested. 
all of these mighty works are happening through the hands of the apostles. And yet, what do we see happening through the hands of the people who are supposed to be leading the children of Israel? And so what do they do? Well, in verse 18, we hear they arrest the apostles and put them in the common prison. And once again, as Peter and John were in the prior chapter, we see that the apostles are there overnight. This is a very dire situation. The leaders of the church, all of them, have been locked up. And with a dire situation like this, but we see a rather drastic intervention. God sends an angel that opens the prison door and brings them out. And when they're brought out, we hear that this angel, which means messenger, gives them a command, gives them a message from God. He doesn't tell them, all right, I've liberated you, run and hide so that way they don't kill you tomorrow. Rather, he tells them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What's the life in question here? Again, we see life here in the RSV with a capital L. Well, that life is a life in Christ. That life is rooted in the gospel, the good news of the resurrection, which marks Christ trampling down upon death by death itself. This is the end of sin. This is the end of this age. Because Christ has transfigured and fulfilled all. Although in a linear sense, we haven't seen the total fulfillment of this in our life, we have the promise that it has come. And when we live a life in Christ, as we see through the acts of the apostles and the healings that are taking place around them, we too can be participants in the life that is to come in the here and now. Because when we see these healings taking place, whether it be by Jesus or now through his apostles, well, what's happening? It's not magic. It's not this systematic process of Jesus saying a bunch of words and then those words cause this person to be healed. Rather, it's through coming into direct contact with Christ that they're restored. And this is why infirmity is highlighted this way. Because what happens with infirmity is that when infirmity comes in the contact with the creator of all, it's transfigured. It's returned to its intended state. And that's because man was not intended to be infirm in the same way that humanity was not intended to die. So when all of these aspects of the fallen world come into contact with Christ, what do we see? We see that they're transfigured. We see that they're returned to their intended state. So now as the people come into contact with the apostles who have Christ working through them, well, what do we see? We see the same transfiguration occurring because Christ is truly in their midst. He's in the midst of his church. And this shows us where Christ is in our life today. Is Christ, too, is in the church. And what is the church? Well, the church isn't just a building. The church is the gathering. The church is you and me. Now, yes, there is the structural hierarchy of the church, as we see laid out here in Acts, because, again, we don't see the average person in the church distributing their wealth as they wish. 
Rather, they're laying it at the feet of the apostles, and then the apostles are distributing their wealth to those who have need. So there will always be hierarchy, as we see here in the very early church. And yet, we see that all are still one in church, one in Christ, rather, as the church. But what's happening? Well, we see that the leaders of the people are enraged because they see all that is transpiring. And yet, God comes and intercedes. God frees his people, as he always does. Whether it be in this life or in the life to come, we are promised eternal liberation in him. And so we see this liberation taking place in the physical sense with the apostles. They're led out of prison by this angel and strictly charged to go continue to preach the word of the gospel to all those who will receive it. And so then we see further tension created between the leaders of the people. Because we hear the high priest comes and calls the council together and we see that the council comes together of the elders and they send for the apostles in prison. And so the chief guard goes and he tries to bring the apostles there, but when he gets to the prison, he sees that they're not there. The guard's still there, the doors are shut, showing us that the angel even went as far as to shut the doors after freeing the apostles. And yet the apostles are nowhere to be found. And we see that the leaders of the Jewish people are perplexed by this. Because again, they locked these guys up last night, expecting them to be there when they will congregate the next day. And now they're gone. Where are they? And yet we hear a report come saying that the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And so they send the captain with his officers and they bring them, but we're told they do this without violence. So by identifying the fact that they're doing this without violence, this tells us that they wish to do violence to them. So in response to the wonder that they have of what happened, what do they do? Well, they don't open their hearts to receiving Christ and saying, hmm, maybe this is a divine act of God. Rather, they harden their hearts further and they seek to do violence to the apostles. But what is it that keeps them from doing so? Well, it's the same thing that kept them from stoning Jesus. It's their fear of the people. And here we see it's their fear of being stoned by the people. And so we see once again that there's a conflict between the leaders of the people desire to have authority over the people and to rid themselves of this new threat. And this is something that we're going to see continued here in the final section of this week's chapter. So moving on to verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you indeed to, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were angered and wanted to kill them. But the Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care that you do not you do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose, giving himself out to be somebody. And the number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was slain, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean arose in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan of this undertaking is for a man, is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and at home, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we see that as the apostles are brought into the council, the high priest begins to question them. And he says that we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. So notice here how he's even refusing to use the name of Jesus. He's identifying the power that is taking place there. And this shows that there's some fear at play. He fears Jesus because afterwards he says, yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. So again, remember, what did the leaders of the people do? Well, to kind of pawn Jesus off on the Romans, they couldn't themselves kill him because they feared the people. But they put it in the Romans' hands. And the reason they did this was because they resented Jesus. The reason they did this was because they wouldn't allow for their hearts to be softened enough to allow for him to dwell in them. And yet, what has this led to? Well, this led to now the resurrection. So, in this claim that the apostles are intending to bring the blood of this man upon them, well, what is being said by the high priest? Well, what's being said by the high priest is that this man was not an innocent man as you apostles are claiming. And now you're turning around and saying that we're guilty of shedding innocent blood? And yet, what do we see in Peter's response? Well, we see Peter continue to do what he's been doing in all of his little sermons, in all of his replies. He's speaking the truth in love. 
Because we hear him first and foremost say that we must obey God rather than man. So again, the leaders of the Jewish people charge them to be silent. And yet, they've continued to preach the gospel. And the reason for that is because God is the one who is telling them to do so. And we see Peter continue to say, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging on a tree. So here we see truth being articulated. Christ has risen. God has risen him. And yet, there's responsibility on the part of the leaders of the people in his death. They're responsible for his blood in the same way that we saw the Gentiles are responsible. All those who fled from Christ are responsible. There's this universal responsibility for the death of Jesus. And yet, we often forget that there's an off-ramp for all of us, even the leaders of the people. Because in Peter reminding them of this fact, we don't see a condemnation. Peter isn't standing there saying, you killed Jesus, now you're damned to hell and all of your kids are. No. Peter's highlighting the fact of what has happened. They have killed Jesus by hanging him on the tree. That is, he has been killed in this shameful way. In verse 31, we hear, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. And what is he doing as the savior? He's giving repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So repentance is the off-ramp. Repentance is the path back towards God. And this is what Peter further says they are witnesses of. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has now given to those who obey him. So we see that the Spirit is helping the apostles in giving witness to this fact. And we see that St. Peter here isn't condemning He's not saying to them, you're damned to hell because you killed Jesus. Because again, we're all responsible of killing Christ in the way. Rather, he's stating the facts of the matter and showing them the mercy of God is shining through regardless of this great crime. Salvation is still being offered to the children of Israel. Salvation is being offered now to the whole of creation. But to be able to obtain the salvation, what do we need to do? But we need to repent. We need to realize what we've done wrong. And we need to orient ourselves ultimately towards Christ. And yet, what do we hear happen? What we hear that the leaders of the people become angered. And they jump to the point of rage where they want to kill the apostles. And it's here that we see a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. So here we see the first introduction of the Pharisees since Jesus entered Jerusalem. Because remember, the Pharisees within St. Luke's account of the gospel don't have the same responsibility in the death of Jesus as we see in the other gospel narratives. Rather, they've been testing Jesus this whole time, 
but they haven't been expressly opposed to him. This doesn't mean that they've been followers of Christ, but this means that they've taken a much more neutral perspective. And from a narrative perspective, it seems like that has been in setup for the introduction of Gamaliel here. Because when Gamaliel is introduced, what do we see? Well, we see temperance. We see balance. He's not a follower of Christ. And yet, he's the cool head that we will see prevail here. And this name, Gamaliel, is also a name that's recognized by the Jews to this day. He is a rabbi held in great honor. And from our perspective, we understand him to be the teacher of both St. Paul and St. Stephen, who we're going to meet in the next chapter. So if this wise teacher has the sight that we're soon going to see, well, we see that he is the one who's planted the seeds in both Stephen and Paul. Seeds that will flourish into the mighty works that they will do in their ministry. And so when we look at this wisdom, well, we go to verse 35, and we see that he identifies the leaders of the people after they've sent the apostles out as men of Israel. And he tells them to take care what you do with these men. And after he says this, he highlights what happened with two insurrectionists, with two people who tried to create a religious movement. That is Theodos and uh, Judas the Galilean. So what we can ascertain from this is that these two men rise up claiming to be someone. So they're orienting the people towards themselves. And they go out and they're leading the people. And then both of them are killed. They're killed as insurrectionists. So the Romans make a very big point in killing them. They're trying to make an example of them within the eyes of the people. And if you want an account of both of these men, you can look to Josephus's history. And yet... What we can understand here is that when these people are killed, what happens? Well, the people who are following them fall away. So what's Josephus, rather, what's Gamaliel saying here? Well, Gamaliel is saying the same will be the case with the apostles. Now, he's not saying kill the apostles in the same way that these two insurrectionists, they weren't killed by the Jewish people, they were killed by the Romans. So, what he's saying here is not to persecute. Rather, what he's saying is keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it's going to fail with time. It's going to fade away. If the leaders of the people, to use a modern term, are on the right side of history, well, then what's going to happen? Well, in the end, they're going to be the ones who are revealed to have been in the right, while the apostles are going to be revealed to be in the wrong. And yet, we see that Gamaliel has clarity. Because in verse 39, he says, But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. 
you might even be found opposing God. So here's the warning that he gives them. He sees the rage, he sees their anger and desire to kill the apostles. And when he sees this rash display, display rather, of emotion, what's he doing? Well, he's saying this isn't good. And this is telling us that when we react to situations in the same way, we're called to take a step back. We're called to let cooler heads prevail. Because if our gut reaction is to have rage and direct that towards another human being, well then, I'd say we're pretty off. Because when have we seen Christ react in this way? If we're called to be Christ-like, well then we're called to follow his example. So if Christ doesn't lash out in rage, even when he's betrayed by his closest friends and hung on the cross, well, then we're called to express the same temperance. And it's this lack of temperance, this lack of moderation, that Gamaliel recognizes within the leaders of the people. And yet, Gamaliel's also paying attention to what's happening within this church community. He sees that there's more at play. Someone clearly divine has freed the apostles in the first place. And they've continued to preach like the prophets of old, even though they have this threat of death. So even though Gamaliel doesn't become a Christian, he's a sympathizer to them. He sees that there's value and merit in what they're doing. And so we see that his heart is partially open. And he becomes the tool of God in a sense. Because in his openness of heart, we hear in verse 40 that they took his advice. Cooler heads prevailed. And so they call the apostles and they're going to set them free. But we see that this rage is still in them. So they beat them. And then they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus as they let them go. And yet what do we see? The reaction of the church. Well, the reaction of the church is that they left the presence of the council and they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name that is the name of Jesus. So we see that even though they're being persecuted, they're rejoicing. And the reason for that is now they see that what Jesus had promised them when he told them that they would be persecuted for his namesake is now taking place. They're being persecuted for living lives centered in the name of Christ. They're being persecuted for having Christ and his saving gospel spread to the world. And I think it's important to look at this as we conclude this week, because we see them continuing to praise God in the temple and in the homes and teaching and preaching everywhere, even though they're experiencing this physical persecution. And I think we need to be very intentional in how we're interpreting this. Because oftentimes we can feel persecuted, but then we forget to ask ourselves in whose name are we being persecuted for? 
if people are persecuting us because of opinions that we have and beliefs, well, that doesn't mean that we're being persecuted in the name of Christ. Rather, we could be persecuted in the name of something entirely different. And that is a justified persecution, as harsh as that might sound. And this is why, as Christians, we're called constantly to strive to having Christ at the center of our being. Because we're not called to live for our will alone. Because when we live for our will, with time, we could find ourselves to be counter to God. We could find ourselves, like in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, to have this vast divide between us and the bosom of Abraham. And that's not something that happens overnight. Again, we don't commit one sin and that's the end of our life. Because repentance is always on the table. But repentance is this continual process of returning to God, realizing the wrong that we've done, and setting back on the correct path. This is something that each and every one of us is called to do. Because when we continue to practice repentance, what do we do? Well, when we experience the reality of hardship in our life, we give praise, rejoicing, and glorifying God. This is not a masochistic approach that we see in the church. The church isn't going around looking for trouble. Rather, they're preaching the gospel of Christ. And trouble is finding them because of that reality. And yet, when this hardship is afflicting them, what are they doing? Well, rather than praying to God and saying, God, please free us from this hardship, they're rejoicing because they know their ultimate salvation has been found in Christ. It's this knowledge that will allow for St. Stephen, as we're going to see in two chapters, to offer his life becoming the first martyr. And it's through his witness that many more individuals will be added to the Church of Christ. So whenever we suffer, we need to ask ourselves, how can we give witness to God in our suffering? Because the unfortunate reality of the world that we live in is that all of us are going to experience some level of suffering. We're all going to die. That's just the reality of living in this fallen age. Yet when we experience suffering, when we experience death, and when we experience hardship, we need to face it in the name of Christ. And when we do so, we'll be able to offer it up so that way Christ can transfigure that hardship. So that way Christ can transfigure that suffering. Ultimately, so Christ can transfigure death. All of this needs to be the glory of God. Because we're called to glorify God in all aspects of our life. So as we meditate upon this chapter in the coming week, we need to ask ourselves, how is God calling for me to offer the whole of my life? What sufferings am I currently going through that I could ask God to help transfigure? And how can I constantly remember that Christ, who lived as we live, suffered as we suffered, died as we die, and yet has risen and now offered us the possibility of resurrection and eternal life in him?
how can I remember that he too is with me as I'm in peril? So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. Until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming weeks, I invite you to see for yourself the depth of meaning that they can present to us all. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for this Bible study, links can be found in the description below. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in this Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live the life that Christ calls us to live through the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End every Sunday for Orthros starting at 8.30 a.m. and Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, I've also linked in the bio the Directory of Greek Orthodox Churches as a resource so that you can find an Orthodox church near you. As always, thank you for listening and may St. John the Forerunner continue to give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight.